Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 4 from our lecture series on Russia's New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church. The topic of today's lesson is the Satanic Bolshevik Mentality and Methodology. This podcast was originally recorded in June of 2021. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. Welcome, everybody. God bless you. Glad you're here with us again on this uh, fourth of ten lectures on the Russian New Martyrs in the Catacomb Church. Such an important topic for us today, always an important topic for us to go back to the saints and to dive in always and read the lives of the saints. This should be our daily bread in the church, but this is particularly important today because we are facing as the prophetic utterance once told us many decades ago, yesterday in Russia, today in America, and generally throughout the world, we see the rise of totalitarianism and the spirit of renovationism in the church. And so we need to know our saints. We need to know our church history. We need to know how they dealt with these temptations so that we can likewise follow in their footsteps and save our souls and help others to save theirs on the in these di- difficult, difficult and cunning and evil days that we live in. So we're in lesson four, as we said, we're going to be looking at not only the satanic Bolshevik mentality methodology, there'll be some of that, but we're going to continue with some more details and important uh, developments in terms of the renovationists. And we'll finish that off tonight before we go next week into uh, aspects of the lives of the saints during this period of 1917 to 1927. That'll be next week's class, looking at the lives of the saints and how they encountered these new conditions in the the Russian church. And then we'll go, we'll continue essentially the story of what happened after the renovationists. And uh, you'll see tonight that we'll we'll end uh, talking about Metropolitan Peter, who was the local tenants after St. Tikhon. And we'll pick that up again in two weeks when we look at the declaration of Patriarch, or I should rather say Metropolitan Sergius, who later became, uh, went on to become, uh, in 1945, uh, he was elevated by his bishops to Patriarch. So we'll see about that in due time, but let's start out with our prayers tonight. Let's look at... Um, Say our prayers, and then we'll we'll go right into aspects of the Soviet approach to the church, the Bolshevik approach to the church, and the the Orthodox response. So let's say our prayers and begin tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teaching. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all kind of desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things that are well pleasing unto thee. 
So now, the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and we ascribe glory together with our Father, who is from everlasting, the Holy Good and Life Creating Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Tu salis analixas, cata pemsas aftis to pnevma, to aigi angeli afton, tinikumenis aigi nevsas, filantrope, <clears throat> Amen. Okay, let's uh, dive in. This is going to be a bit of both, as I said, a look at the Soviet Bolshevik mentality, which is important because it it is, of course, straight from the pit of hell and the enemy of our salvation is not very creative. He's an ape of God. He imitates what he sees. He inverts everything. And so what he faked up in the 20s, no doubt, we'll see again, as that was also in some ways a repetition of ancient times for the church, the martyrdom and the confessors and the the satanic uh, uh, mentality in terms of how to torture and to and to, and to bring about the, their their satanic plan, so it's it's uh, it's going to be a bit of both tonight. We're going to look at the renovationists and how that ended, or at least for the for, to a certain degree ended in the 19, 1927, How it how it deflated rather quickly, and the Soviets were a part of that uh, uh, that dissolution. So this is lesson four, as we said, and let's begin going back a little bit in time to 1921 to a telegram from A.V. Luna Charsky. I'm always butchering these words, so forgive me for you Russian speakers who know how to speak properly. Uh, these, this is uh, a major uh, figure in the Bolshevik uh, party, one of the figureheads that went on for for quite some time to lead and to uh, be kind of the theorist, the uh, the planner behind the scenes. And he writes to Lenin about how to manipulate and destroy the church. And this is very important for us to understand how they're going to approach the church and the renovationists uh, as they go forward. And he writes the following. A significant part of the clergy undoubtedly sensing the stability of the Soviet regime, wants to be reconciled with it. Of course, this renovated orthodoxy with a Christian socialist lining is not at all desired and finally will be eliminated and disappear. But as an active opposition to the reactionary patriarch and his supporters, it can play its role because it is based mainly on the peasant masses the backward merchant class, and the more backward part of the proletariat. 
For these groups, such a temporary center of clerical unity is a great shift to the left of the one that they still find in the reactionary Orthodox Church. We cannot, of course, support the activity of Soviet Orthodoxy. It might, however, be most advantageous to render aid secretly and create in the religious arena several transitional stages on the way to atheism for the peasant masses. Okay, let's unpack this a bit, and then we'll we'll comment also on whether this was totally correct. We have, of course, the advantage of hindsight, so we can see uh, to what degree uh, this was this was accurate, much more uh, than than he could uh, see forward. So let's look at this a bit. So obviously, they uh, have no interest in. These poor, uh, deluded folks called the renovationists who think they're going to pull one up on the on the Bolsheviks and they're going to somehow create a space for themselves in the new uh, Bolshevik Soviet reality. It was very clear to everyone, I think, from what I can tell from the sources, that they knew that the Soviets wanted no part in any religion whatsoever. And their goal was to get rid of every religious aspect of life. So the we might describe some of these renovationists as the the willing idiots uh, who, for other reasons, uh, maybe there's a few, but not many who had any honorable reasons. But for careerism, as we'll see in other things, they wanted to uh, to take the reins of power and 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 bring about the renovation that they had been talking about long before the revolution in Russia. Some of it is considered legitimate. There were legitimate things that wanted to, that the hierarchy wanted to see and talked about in the 1917 uh, council. But a lot of this, what we'll see is not at all legitimate and part of the Orthodox tradition. So they wanted to, some of them wanted to, to use this opportunity that was given to them because the, the GPU, the secret service, the, uh, the, the secret police of the, Bolshevik regime approached these people, having learned of their uh, desire to throw off the patriarch and the patriarchate. They were against the patriarchate, most of these uh, people, uh, the same kind of people who went on after, uh, rather the same kind of people who in 1917 were against it. And you see that, for instance, in St. Hilarion Trotsky, his speech during the 1917 council, 18 council, and the opposition to that were, were from elements that will go on to become part of the renovation. So strangely, they don't want the patriarchate to return. Uh, and they don't want, they, they want a, an inversion uh, or, or, or a takeover from below. So not interested in true orthodox ecclesiology at all. Uh, so they're going to be used by the, by the, the communists. And you can see here that they're, they're, it's a temporary uh, tool to destabilize and to move everything to the left, and this is exactly what we see in the in, in ever since the 1920s in America. Is that step by step by step, everything politically and morally goes to the left, so that today some people think wrongly that to walk the royal path is to choose the two extremes in society. But, of course, that would be gravely wrong and an error 
if constantly the goalposts are changing and they're going left, who would have thought 20 years ago, even 10, 15 years ago, that today they would be trying to force down young children in school the idea uh, 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 that of transgenderism or transhumanism or any of the insanity that we see today in society, even just a decade or two decades or three decades ago, nobody, most people would not even imagine this could be going on. And yet here we are. So if someone were to choose today, obviously to go the Royal, to so-called go the Royal path in this society, uh, meaning the middle path, rather not the Royal path, just choosing the two extremes and trying to go in the middle. Of course, they're going to, they're not, not going to be in the spirit of God. They're not going to be on the Royal path. This is what, this is what happened in the 1920s. They wanted to shift everything to the left, to the left, to the left, to the point where they would get the church. Eventually someone would step forward and do their bidding and allow for, for, uh, the church to fit in uh, in the way that the Bolsheviks wanted it to be uh, essentially decimated and just a, a figurehead and not any threat at all to the power. They actually thought that they, the church was a threat to their power. They really believed that the church could bring about some kind of revolution, as we'll see. So they're going to the left. Uh, they, they have no intention of actually creating uh, for any length of time uh, a Soviet orthodoxy, a, a living church, a renovationist church. It's a temporary measure. And they're going to aid it secretly, essentially allow it to exist, not exile the people in, or, or persecute them and, and allow them to exist in order to, to denigrate and to, uh, to silence, if possible, Patriarchikon, who had been a major adversary, probably the greatest adversary at that point uh, in uh, the Bolshevik, uh, for the Bolshevik regime in the 1920s, because he had the, the masses of people loved him and uh, looked to him for his leadership. So this is very interesting. This is, a, this is their, one of their blueprints uh, from, from one of the architects. Uh, let's go on and see a little bit about the people now who are going to uh, what what the intellectual climate is and how do they how did some of these people buy into this? Where is it coming from? It's very interesting that before the revolution, some of these same people uh, were were actually intellectually sparring and 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 were in the same intellectual circles. Uh, and it reminds me again of what Saint John of Cronstadt was saying in the late. 1890s, early 1900s, about the intellectual class being the great threat to the uh, future of orthodoxy in Russia. Similarly, this is what St. Cosmas at the Los said hundreds of years ago. He said, from the intellectuals, from the, the anumini, the intellectuals, that's where the problem will come. That's where the, the threat and the, uh, the, the evils will come uh, in the future. Uh, and so here we go again in Russia, the same thing. And again, Throughout history, the problem is not with uh, the, the simple faithful, but it's with usually the uh, intellectuals who are rationalists, who uh, who do not submit, who who, who imitate the, uh, the Lucifer in his pride. Uh, so, here's some very interesting commentary. I think it was an important historical details for us to understand how we ended up, how we're going to end up in 1927 which we'll talk about in two weeks. So Lunar Tarski, who is this 
Soviet uh, uh, spokesman. Uh, and perhaps also Tuchkov, Tuchkov, I guess is how you would say it, may have had more sympathy for renovated orthodoxy than they were willing to admit, at least to Lenin. Lunatarsky was a product of what Berdayev has called the Silver Age, the period between the end of the 19th century and 1914, when there was an intense interest among intellectuals in aesthetic and religious questions. Vidensky, this is the, one of the heads of the living, the uh, renovationists, was also, like Berdayev himself, a product of the Silver Age. Lunacharsky had worked out many of his most basic ideas in dialogue with Berdayev. So, of course, Berdayev is one of the converts from uh, Marxism who became Orthodox but was essentially a heretic, remained in, del in delusion in terms of sophiology and other things that he taught. He left Russia, became well-known in, in France and in the uh, diaspora uh, for his writings, but unfortunately was not Orthodox, did not, not teach Orthodoxy. Uh, and so he's debating and dialoguing with the people who are going to make up the Bolshevik Revolution uh, and the, uh, the, the intellectual class of the Bolsheviks. And in the same climate, we have the, the renovationists. As a young man, Vividensky uh, frequented what was almost the temple of the movement, the Salon of Dmitry Merezkovsky and Zinyada Gipias, I, I'm butchering these words, forgive me, who, among much else, organized religious and philosophical encounters between intellectuals and churchmen, presided over by, and this is the important part here, presided over by Ivan Stragorodsky, Stragorodsky, I don't know how you say that, then rector of the St. Petersburg Theological Academy, later to become Metropolitan Sergei, uh, second patriarch after Tika in the Moscow Patriarch, if one accepts the validity of his election. So that is very, very interesting. We have these figures who are intellectually in the same milu, and they're, they're, they're before the revolution, they're going back and forth and they're talking and they're, and they're debating. And it's not, it's not surprising uh, that the... Uh, what, how we arrive at 1927 after the fact, because this is not the climate or the area in which piety uh, is connected to truth and then blossoms forth into holiness, right? This is the methodology of the rationalist intellectuals, which has its place, but it's pretty limited, and it's not going to bring about the kind of holiness and the kind of purification, illumination that we see in the lives of the saints. So I think that is uh, very instructive and interesting. Let's talk now about a little bit about the Bolsheviks and the renovationists and how they see and use one another for their own uh, gain. Uh, the Bolsheviks feared the specter of a church-backed counter-revolution. This might seem strange to us as pious Orthodox Christians to imagine that the church would actively engage in that kind of counter-revolution. But uh, as someone wrote, it's, the church wasn't concerned with counter-revolution. They were, they were concerned with counter-renovation. Uh, 
countering the renovationists. That was the main concern of the church, church saints and fathers in these four or five years, crucial years. Uh, they were less concerned, as we'll see, Metropolitan Peter, with the persecution than with the distortion of the faith by the renovationists. And that has got to be the case for us as well today. Uh, we've got to be on guard about the internal distortion and perversion of the church more than the external uh, persecution of the church. This commentary by uh, a, a academic, I thought, from Slavic Review, this is from 1996, he says, they became convinced that conservative Orthodox bishops were conspiring with recent Russian emigres to launch a coup that would be funded by the church's wealth. The Bolsheviks decided to cultivate allies with among the, quote, Soviet Orthodox. That's not a, uh, a uh, misnomer. I don't know what it is. In order to confiscate wealth and thwart the conspiracy, the so-called conspiracy, a conspiracy that existed only in the minds of the Bolshevik leaders who were projecting their own tactics onto their opponents. The renovationists recognized the opportunity offered by this political crisis to gain state backing for their reform program. They accepted covert governmental aid and recklessly seized control of central of the central church apparatus. We, we learned about that last week, how they essentially moved in with the help of the secret secret police and had a meeting and 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 lied to Patriarch Tikin and then they, they kept uh Metropolitan Agathangulos away so they could take the power into their own hands. So they were from the beginning liars and cheaters and thieves. Uh and uh, of course nothing good was going to come of it. And that's why I titled this Antichrist and Judases, because the Antichrist were were uh, like the Pharisees using Judas to kill Christ, and the and the and the, Ju, Ju, the Judases here uh, are uh, w willingly being used and being perverted and distorted by the uh, Antichrist, the Bolsheviks, uh, and also going along with the crucifixion of the Church. They they absolutely, you know, no matter how well motivated some of the people who got involved in this movement were, this was a grave grave delusion, and they were certainly traitors to the church with everything they were doing by co-working uh, uh, co with the enemies, uh, the atheists, the militant atheists against the church. So let's not have any delusion about that because there's this tendency in our day also with similar situations to become very, be very naive about what's happening. Uh, because we like to always, Orthodox Christians, all Christians like to Give the benefit of the doubt, not judge, of course. We shouldn't judge people's hearts. But we have to have discernment, and we have to realize the spiritual reality of things and the, and the signs that are given. And when someone falls into not teaching orthodoxy, there's already a spiritual fall. It has nothing to do with their well-intended, uh, you know, mo their motivations. That's, that's a secondary thing. People could be very well motivated and be involved in great evil. So we have to... Uh, have discernment to say, is this th these actions according to God? And if not, then then there there's no neutrality in the spiritual life. That well, oh, it's just a neutral issue; doesn't matter. No, there's a war going on, and either you're on one side or the other, and you have to fight this uh, battle. And you cannot be uh, naive about 
above matters. And so this is a good, I think, uh, lesson to learn here. And let's look at a little bit more closely about who's involved in the renovationist movement. And there's a variety of people, obviously, a variety, a variety of motivations. Uh, so first of all, there's a, a great amount of initially, uh, they, they didn't stick around very long. A lot of these, they, they, they jettisoned themselves from the renovation movement fairly quickly. It, it deflated fairly quickly. Uh, but there were these, how to put it, priest officiants, those people who, those priests who basically saw themselves as uh, in charge of the ritual, uh, didn't have much depth, didn't have much understanding of the spiritual life. Uh, they carried out the ritualistic aspects of their priesthood. And they were seeking security from the storm. And they saw that the the Soviets, the Bolsheviks had given the living church and the renovationists cover. And so they saw this was a way to get out uh, from underneath uh, the persecution. Uh, there were also these scoundrels, as this writer puts it, uh, who joined renovationism in pursuit of a quick career, careerism, uh, rushing to enjoy the moral, quote unquote, moral freedom, in other words, immorality, allowed by the renovationists. Bishop Antonin, the initial leader, the first bishop uh, at the first council, but later was uh, he was jettisoned for his views. They weren't all in agreement. Uh, said about them, a cesspool barrel of the Orthodox Church. In other words, the, the bottom barrel cesspool of the church joined these folks. And we're going to see an example of that in a few, in a few slides, unfortunately, uh, how that was the case. Uh, almost all of them were agents of the G. PU. In other words, they were, they were, it, there was no moral compass, there was no uh, principle, and so they would be easily used by the GPU, the secret police. There were also ideological modernists, people who really believed in, in modernizing and adjournamento, uh, uh, you know, what they did at the Second Vatican Council for the Orthodox Church in the 1920s. Uh, and they were sincere in their striving for what they thought would be a renewal of the church. These lived, unfortunately, they were idealists, and so they they suffered uh, probably because they were not cunning like the rest of them, and they were relegated to rundown parishes. They were pressed by the authorities and their spiritual leaders, and not recognized by the people. They almost all ended up in the camps uh, because, of course, the Soviets turned on the renovations as well eventually and sent them to the camps. And then there were the ideologues of renovationism, the, the brilliant, talented, and ambitious people who came up on the crest of a revolutionary wave, and they also were associated with the secret police. And these are the leaders, the ones that are well known that we've been talking about. <clears throat> this is a quote from, on the left here, Anatoly Krasnov Levitin Levitin. This is a well-known uh, historian, basically, of the renovationists. He himself was involved toward the, at the tail end of it in the late 40s and mid 40s. Uh, and then he was received into the Moscow Patriarchate. But he had a lot of a tremendous memory. He was actually a dissident. He wrote against uh, many of the abuses in the 60s of the Soviets. Uh, he died in 91. So he, he, he had quite a long life. He was born in 15, 1915. And anyway, he, he's probably one of the main sources of all the scholars that are doing work on the renovationists in this period because he actually has had personal contact and had an amazing memory and had access during the Soviet period to a lot of the material. And he wrote uh, a, a pretty detailed history of the renovations. And he says 
in the time that he joined them in the 40s, he says the following about them to give the sense. He says there were no reforms at that time in the renovationist church. As we'll see, they, they backtracked on, on many of the reforms they wanted to see. When they saw that they were losing power, losing the people, then they started to backtrack on these reforms. Uh, so it was, again, just opportunism in many ways and not sincerity. But they were there were no reforms, he says, at that time. Most priests went there simply because affiliation with the renovationism was a kind of habeas corpus act. In other words, a guarantee against arrest. In other words, all the way up until, I guess, the 40s, apparently, because I think this is what he's talking about, at least my understanding, he's talking about his experience there, but he may be talking about earlier period. It's not clear to me. But in any case, that's a, that's something that happened from the beginning, for sure, during our, our years we're looking at it, 20, 20 to 22 to 27. This was a big reason why people joined the renovations, because they were going to be free of persecution, as we said. So the renovationists, interestingly, just adopted the methodology of the Bolsheviks. They didn't have even an orthodox uh, ethos enough to understand that the methodology of the Bolsheviks was not a Christian methodology. So they used it as a model. They organized the parish clergy as a vanguard for church revolution. The cells that they created and the representatives in every diocese directed the work of renovating the church. Of course, they had to get rid of a lot of people because a lot of people were against them initially. So they had to move in like the, like, and, and in, a, in a similar way, in a political way, to try to get rid of people who were their opposition. Uh, bishops and clergy who refused to acknowledge the authority of their new ecclesiastical superiors were deposed and often arrested or exiled by the local police. One year later, having neutralized any threat of counter-revolution and fearing that the renovationists might succeed in forming a Soviet church, the Bolsheviks changed course. This is the, one of the most interesting aspects of this, uh, this time period is that the Bolsheviks very quickly betrayed the renovationists. When they saw, when they released, uh, when, when Tikhon was released after giving some kind of uh, concessions to the Soviets, what they were asking, he was released. Immediately, the people abandoned, the uh, vast majority of people abandoned the renovationists. Bishops and others who had gone over repented, came back to Tikhon, St. Tikhon and the, and the uh, Patriarchate. And so the, the, so the Bolsheviks said, well, the renovations aren't having success, as we'll see. They have, they're not having success. We don't, we don't, there's no point in trying to support that. Or there was a conversely, initially they were afraid before they saw that the, the, the renovations were falling apart because there was a time when there was a lot of initial success, there was also the thought on the Bolsheviks, well, we don't want a Soviet church. We don't want them to have success. What we want is division. We want confusion. We want to undermine any kind of stability. And so they turned on the renovationists. And for the next six years, the state policy worked to split the Orthodox diocese and parishes by playing factions against one another. So they would go in and they there would be factions in one parish or one diocese, and they would they would very cunningly work to make sure that there was never peace, never stability, there was never clarity. And they would even divide parishes themselves, parishes themselves between the renovationists and the Orthodox and make them use the same building 
or uh, do other things that would compromise each faction. So this was the this is an aspect of this demonic, satanic methodology and mentality of the uh, Bolsheviks. Let's go on to <clears throat> this next part. The Orthodox response, which I think is one of the most inspiring. But before we get there, I want to look at some more aspects of the renovationist MO. And it's important for us to see this because it's a very, very important lesson uh, that we need to learn about the spiritual life and the unity of dogma and ethos. So the, the renovationists, as we've seen, we're going to repeat this a little bit. It's important. They spoke more of Christ's humanity than his divinity. They were humanists, which is not at all surprising, right? They, they had a God that was basically exiled, something like uh, the deist, deist, what the deists were doing in enlightenment. They had that kind of approach. Uh, they wanted uh, to give, they wanted their clergy to have a creative freedom in the performance of their religious duties, as long as they avoided any hint of being anti-Soviet. So one of the main characteristics of the renovationists were subjection and, and, and identifying with the Soviet agenda, believe it or not. That's really a part, a big part of what it was to be a renovationist. Renovations would become a confederation of religious societies embodying the materialistic ideology of the new political, social political order. The renovations steadfastly opposed monasticism and the veneration of relics both of which, however, are windows or pathways to grace and salvation. So they really cut off the people. One of the reasons why they they, they, they had initial uh, response among, among many of the quote, quote, unquote, white clergy, they gave them shelter. There was uh, also a lot of white clergy who were resentful of the bishops. Uh, and so they they grew quickly and then they dis, they were disintegrating quickly because they actually undermined so much of the piety of the people. So when the people, so much of the resistance to the renovations were on the part of the faithful, simple people in the villages and in the parishes throughout uh, the, you know, tens of thousands of parishes throughout the Russian empire, the Russian, uh, the, the new Soviet Union. And so opposing monasticism, opposing the veneration of relics, is not a good idea if you want to have the base of the church. Now, the uh, Lunacharsky, if I'm saying his name right, he actually thought that the renovationists would attract the peasants. It was just the opposite, actually. The peasants rejected the renovationists. That was a major error on their on judgment of their on their part. It was the peasants, the simple faithful, who hated the renovationists because of things like this, opposing the veneration of relics and other things. So. Uh, it, the renovationists were a small elite intellectual crowd uh, who identified with uh, the, the Bolsheviks more than they did the czar. And so they did not have the people. The people were still, they were raised on a, a basic piety, which was totally lacking among the renovationists. Renovations supported married bishops, new calendar, and a second marriage for clergy and much more, as we've seen. In the social sphere, yeah, the, the adoption of the new calendar undermined the cycle of holy days and holidays. This is another major error that they made. Uh, they, the people were very committed to the church calendar because it, it was a big part of their whole rhythm of life. The, the, the feast days, the fasting, all of it. So any change to that whatsoever was suspect and they, they lost all trust. 
from the people, the faithful people. The new calendar was interpreted as a direct attack on the fabric of social relations. Never forgave, they never forgave the renovationists for this assault. All right, so that was very instructive, I think, because this is the base of the Orthodox Church. We have in the West, unfortunately, uh, in the diaspora, uh, not we don't have that phenomenon as much, right? We don't have that base as strong as they had in the old country in Greece and in in in, in Russia, uh, in in Romania and other places, uh, because it's a small church with many converts, and many of the people who are involved in the Orthodox Church are there have come there, at least initially, through an intellectual search. Uh, and they're intellectually motivated, intellectually drawn to the church. And so that dynamic is not as strong in the West uh, among uh, among Orthodox, English-speaking Orthodox. And yet it is so important, and it was so important for Russia to resist the renovationists. And really, throughout the 20th century, it is the uh, it is this this part of the church which has kept the faith the most in the face of all these uh, changes. Now, I want to just take a, a moment to talk a little bit about renovationism and the unity and or the, the the unity of ethos and dogma. Uh, and when one is violated, how that leads to another. Now, there's a particular case here. This unfortunate Archbishop Evdokim uh, Mircherski, who was in America, in Canada, actually, uh, before returning to on the eve of the revolution, uh, returning to uh, Russia. And his, his, his case is very interesting and instructive for us. Now, he joined the renovationists when he returned. He was one of the major leaders of the, of the renovationists, eventually became the head of the renovationists, the synod. And he issued a letter, along with the others, accusing Patriarch Tikhon of, quote, destroying the church. He worked for recognition of renovationism by the Eastern patriarchs. He was one of those, uh, the, the main figure who wanted to see the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the other patriarchs recognize renovationism. And he worked for that. And he worked for reeling in some of the, some of the more extreme renovationists so that they can maintain a face and a credibility with the, with the uh, Eastern patriarchs. He was one of the only three hierarchs of which remained in the schism until the end of his life. He never repented. Never repented. And listen to this. Listen to what Archbishop uh, Anthony Krakowski says about Evdokim, uh, which is very important. And we're going to see another slide on this. In response to his appeal to the emigrate clergy to join the revolution renovationists, which is which is rather comical, but in any case, I mean, certainly there were people who were interested in the in in America at the time, uh, but. Metropolitan Anthony writes that Evdokim has had numerous concubines and illegitimate children, and thus most probably he has been blackmailed by the GPU to join and head the schism. If this is true, then the subsequent refusal of Patriarch Tika to deal in particular with Evdokim is self-explanatory. Indeed, they brought, they wanted to have, as we'll see, uh, Patriarch Tika have a dialogue with the renovationists at some point, and they wanted him to dialogue with Evdokimo, and he flatly refused. Uh, as as Metropolitan Anthony says here, probably because of this reason, there was no way and no, no way he would entertain uh, such a dialogue. Uh, 
Listen to this as well. This goes along with this whole stance and reality here. Uh, so they recognized, we said, married bishops, which, is, which was, of course, a total innovation at the time in the Orthodox Church. And to this day, this has never been seriously entertained for a variety of reasons. People can talk about this. We can talk about the history of it. But this is the reality. It was an innovation at the time, and it still would be uh, unless some major things change, which it doesn't look likely. Uh, and they recognized the, the right of widowed priests to remarry, which is something that we I understand, uh, and I haven't seen the documents myself, So, but I've been told, and there's been some publication of it, that the Patriarch of Constantinople has done the same to this uh, recently. And there are some in different local churches who would like to see this happen. So this is a renovationist position, okay? So renovation is not an orthodox position. It's a renovation position in the 1920s in Russia. Monasteries were to be tolerated only as working communes in areas distant from the cities. And this, this sounds totally foreign to orthodoxy. Of course it is. And it is a part and parcel of the Bolshevik approach. Of course, the Gregorian calendar, we said, was approved. But I want to focus on the moral aspect of this. Listen to what this story of the renovationist says, uh, who is not some bastion of traditional orthodoxy. He, he has elements in his writing and his stances which don't really uh, inspire. But it, it, it's very interesting. He says this license that they gave to widow priests to marry, married bishops to be recognized, Monasteries to be tolerated, basically to be transformed into communes, soon denigrated into general promiscuity among the renovationist clergy. So let's keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind. We have an historical example here in the recent past where these innovations quickly lead to a disintegration of morality among the clergy. And without these innovations, we have this massive temptation today with that going on all around the Christian world. How much more if we actually start to innovate and compromise with the spirit of the world? So here's an example. Uh, you can see two examples here uh, that point us to the connection of ethos and dogma. What, how do they arrive at, at the throwing off the orthodox dogma uh, and being becoming ecumenist, becoming uh, those who embrace Kesaro papism and compromise with the state and all the rest. Look at their life. Look at how they lived. Look at the compromises they make in the ethical, spiritual realm, and then you'll see they are inseparable. You choose one, you choose to, to, to deny one, you'll deny the other. You're faithful to one and and you and you struggle to be faithful to the other. That's what makes you an Orthodox Christian and will keep you on the straight and narrow. There's no compromise. And this, this artificial distinction that people throw together today, which is, which is theoretically correct, but in reality is, is, is far from, from the truth, uh, that, uh, well, it's not a question of dogma. It's not a question of heresy. Strictly speaking, it's not about the Holy Trinity or about Christ. Therefore, we must be, obey our bishop. We must go along with the program, that's actually uh, not an orthodox stance at the end of the day. Because if we understand that it's a, it's a one organic whole, and when you depart from one, you depart, you're going to depart from the other, we're going to resist in an orthodox manner, patristic manner, this is very important, the way of resistance is very important, uh, 
You can't do it in a worldly way. You can't do it in a in a Protestant way. You can't do it in a reactionary, you know, worldly political way. You have to do it in an orthodox way. But you are going to resist the innovations also in terms of ethos, not personal sins, but when they're transformed, translated like they are here to the ecclesiastical, ecclesiological level, they're absolutely considered uh in a in the in in a in a way like heresy into the church, right? If somebody is saying that we should receive, accept, uh, uh, and, and deny the teachings of the church uh, with regard to sexual promiscuity, uh, sexual relations outside marriage, sexual relations between same sexes, all these things which are total innovations and denial of the Orthodox Church teaching for two thousand years, this is not something that we have to resist. It's something that is not dogmatic. It's not. It's not a question of dogma. Of course, it is. It's, it's inseparable from. So this, this this distinction we make is 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 a theoretical distinction. In reality, it's inseparable in life. You cannot separate the two. When you do, uh, when you depart from one, you will again depart from the other. So this is unfortunately one of the characteristics of the renovationists, and uh, brought a, even quicker their demise in the in the eyes of the of the faithful. Uh, the the, the simple faithful, they rejected the renovations for this as well. So the Bolshevik creation was considered by the faithful, not just a schism, but a heresy. This is important. Uh, most Orthodox, most people, most Orthodox Christians in Russia remained in the Orthodox Church and rejected renovationism entirely. And this is captured in some stories, some very instructive stories that we have in some of these that come down to us in some of these sources and have been collected by scholars since the 1980s. Uh, and we have a lot of those, a lot of the material now, which is available, which is very instructive. And this is a, this is a secret police report from July of 1925, right at the heart of the renovationist schism. Members of the Paris Council in the village of Begunica vigorously agitated against the renovationist movement, saying, renovationist priests are commissars in cassocks. They support Soviet power because it pays them. They betray the people. They don't believe in God. They burn icons and rob churches. God has sent Soviet power to punish us for our sins. If people will pray as they did in the past, then the Lord God will deliver us from all this evil. So that is a from a police report. It's an obviously candid report of what they saw, the faithful rejecting out of hand the renovationists as essentially an extension of the, of the Antichrist Soviet power. And this attitude extended to the renovationist episcopate as well, not just to the clergy or to the lay people. During a procession from Ustiuga to Kotovalo, I'm, I hate butchering these words. I wish I knew how to say them properly. Led by a renovationist bishop, the Tikanites, quote, the Tikanites, the Orthodox, in other words, sent monks ahead who told the populace not to receive this hierarch because he was a communist imposter and a servant of Soviet power. So this is the reaction. We'll see some more going forward of the faithful. They did not. Uh, stand by and say, well, we have a lot in common. Uh, let's, let's work with the renovationists. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't do the ecumenism of today, basically. 
right? They didn't have this ecumenistic, syncretistic, uh, relativistic approach. Uh, they didn't say, well, we have a lot in, the, a lot in common. Let's, let's work uh, on uniting with the renovationists and we'll work with them and we'll, we'll get rid of, you know, over time we'll, we'll come to an understanding. No, they had the right orthodox approach. The approach of the apostle Paul was the Judaizers who, who's comparatively aired very little compared to these renovationists or many heretics throughout the church history. And yet Paul was absolutely sh very strict in rejecting them as preaching another gospel, another gospel, he says, nothing less. So this is the stance of the Orthodox throughout the church. That's why the Orthodox Church exists to this day, because they did not approach these questions as somehow uh, up for discussion or negotiable. There is no discussion on things that have been passed down generation, 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 in terms of dogma and ethos. The church uh, does not seek a new revelation or a new idea, especially not from the Soviets. So the people are the protectors of the faith. This is a basic rule of orthodoxy. If we go back to the 1848 encyclical of all the patriarchs, the Pope, that's exactly what they say. The people are the protectors of the faith. The people don't want innovation. The people reject innovation. It's exactly what happened in Russia in the, with the renovationists. Time and again, petitioners ask, Commissariat of Justice to stop state officials from supporting the reformers in their removal and arrest of hierarchs, their attempt to change orthodox practice, their interference in parish affairs, and their promotion of material interest of parish clergy. Congregations resented government interference in their internal affairs and the alliance between the renovationists and the state. Especially suspicious was the numerous local Orthodox leaders who suddenly converted to renovationism. So they resented it. These are the people. These are not the, the local clergy. Now, people out there today, there might be faithful out there who feel betrayed by their clergy, just like they were betrayed in those days. Unfortunately, there was a resentment on the part of the quote, white clergy, as we said, against the monastic bishops. There was a division on some level, not, of course, across the board, but there was there was some room for the enemy to work and divide the, the priests from the bishops. And the, and there was a lot of uh, poverty among the priests. There was a lot of neglect by the state and by the church, hierarchy to the priests. And so there was resentment and there was a desire among some to 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 achieve economic and political stability and, 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 and recognition. And so they followed the renovationists, essentially dividing themselves from the people. And the people had to stand up to their own priests who had been come, had become renovationists. They had to stand up and resist. Is this an example for us? Certainly it is. The faithful always have to stand. Every one of us has to have uh, a, a personal experience of the creed. And when we confess it, to believe it and to understand what we're confessing and to pledge ourselves to defend the faith that we confess. Absolutely. And this is a great example for us, the resistance to the renovationists, betrayed by those they trusted and worried by the innovators of the reformers. The Orthodox masses were convinced that renovationism was foreign to the faith, and some likened it to a religion of the Antichrist. So the faithful, they didn't wait for someone in academia or one of the hierarchs to tell them this is 
the spirit of Antichrist that they're encountering. They knew it from experience. In one of the stories there, in Lipetsk province, most Orthodox believers refused even to enter renovationist churches for fear of receiving the mark of the Antichrist. Now, some of our enlightened intellectuals today will say, oh, that's stupid, uh, ignorant uh, peasants who don't understand. It wasn't, they, they, of course, they weren't the Antichrist. Of course, they were of the spirit of the Antichrist. Absolutely. The spirit of the Antichrist has been, as St. John says from the epistles, from the day one, it's been in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is secularism. And this was a very, very secularized, worldly version or distortion of orthodoxy. And the people understood that instinctively. They had an experience of the, the ethos of orthodoxy. They had a spiritual nobility about them. And they understood that the that departure from the narrow path of asceticism uh, in the moral realm and the spiritual realm and departure from the tradition, the holy tradition, equals a departure from Christ and therefore a secularization, a worldly uh, emptying of the spiritual power of the church. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. And it is, of course, in many ages, we've seen the spirit of Antichrist. It doesn't mean that we're before the actual Antichrist, we're before the last days, the last seven years. Of course not. It, we might, uh, might be, might not be, but it's re- it's a cyclical repetition throughout history. We can see again and again that spirit of Antichrist uh, from the early church throughout the, the, the age. I mean, Islam and its persecution of orthodoxy was another version of the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, so, again, we have other stories here that illuminate how the orthodox dealt with renovationism. Many faithful rejected the renovationist claim to be the authoritative governing body of Russian orthodoxy. In a petition to the Commissariat of Justice from January 1923, parishioners from Moscow's Valam Monastery argued against transferring his property to the renovationist high authority because it was a completely different organization in religious spirit. So they didn't look just legalistically at what was going on with the renovations. Did they have the actual authority or not on a legal plane? Did they have the recognition of the state? This is what some people are doing today with certain groups of Orthodox. No, they looked at the spirit, the, the ethos, the Orthodox way, and they understood if it had the spirit of God or not. Most of the faithful steeped in Orthodox tradition branded the renovationists as a new faith. Not just because, remember now, before revolution, there were people in the Orthodox Church who were talking about making some of these changes. And in 1917, there was discussion of some of these changes, right? That there was no action taken and there was no, never a conciliar decision. So some might have thought, well, look, we've been discussing this. These people who want to make these changes, they're, they're part of the Orthodox Church. We've heard this before. No, no, they didn't, they didn't buy into that. It wasn't really only about the changes they wanted to make. It was about their subjugation to the Antichrist powers of the Bolsheviks. That's what was the key. And also the moral departure of, of individuals who, uh, who departed from and, de- and departed from the church calendars. We said and other things. It was, all, it, was, it was all together. But certainly on the hierarchy of things, it was most egregious their total... Uh, complicity before the Bolsheviks 
and uh, being used by the Bolsheviks against the church. A priest serving in the countryside near Kazan reported that in his remote area, the people shared rumors of a new faith in Moscow. They did not recognize icons or keep the fasts. And most important was being supported by Soviet power and has just become the state religion of the uh, Russian Federation or the Russian Soviet, uh, which will become the Soviet Union. So there you have another example of the uh, intuitive, heartfelt response of the faithful. Orthodox lady sought to keep renovationists and other agents of the Soviet state out of their parish affairs. Both the Bolsheviks and the renovationists were a threat in this regard, since there existed insoluble conflicts with, between everyday deeply embedded Orthodox life and the new society which was emerging. So they saw the renovationists as a part and parcel of the rejection of their way of life, of the Orthodox way, the old way. Parishioners responded to this threat by driving the movement from the holy ground, that is, out of the parish church building, denouncing renovationism as a heresy that had to be expunged, lest it defile the holy faith. They did not stop after liberating a specific church from renovationist apostasy. Their goal was nothing less than the reclaiming of every parcel of orthodox ground from these traitors to the faith. Now, mind you, the person writing this is an academic. It's not a monk or a priest. He is writing this, and he's writing on the basis of everything he's found in his research from the archives and, and, and what he's seen as the overwhelming response of the faithful. So this is not a biased researcher painting it to make it look the Orthodox look good. This is a scholar who is his job is to report what he's finding in, in his research. And he, I want to just stress the... the uh, the Greek word is, is much better, but in English, I get translated as manliness. I mean, the courage, the, the strength of these faithful, uh, uh, the decisiveness, uh, the, 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 the risk they're taking, uh, the boldness in, in, in confessing the faith and in resisting heresy. It, this reminds us of, for instance, the Council of Florence when they returned, and the story is that they threw the, they threw the hierarchs out. They, they rejected them out of hand physically were angry at the betrayal of the faith. This is the, this reminds us of during the iconoclast, the first martyr uh, of the, uh, the iconoclast heresy was some women who went down, who went when there was a soldier sent to remove the icon from the, from above the, uh, the gate, the icon of Christ uh, above the gate, going to the palace. I think it was, uh, they put the, the ladder, the soldier went up, and these women threw the soldier down and actually killed the soldier. I think this is my my understanding. And they became martyrs. They were they were uh, executed. Those are the first martyrs against the iconoclast. This is the response of the faithful. Not that we become violent, but but we of course now the methodology is still going to be deeply Christian. But it doesn't mean we are we become doormats. It doesn't mean we we just oh well, you know peace, love, and, and harmony. This is this is not the this is not the orthodox response. That's not love. Love is to confess and to resist the destruction of the church, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the faith uh, uh, when it's being uh, when it's being uh, threatened. Uh, this is the orthodox response, not uh, any kind of um, uh, passivity uh, before the destruction of the things of God. Okay, 
yes, we love our enemies, absolutely. But when they attack Christ, we defend. When they attack the church, we defend the church. We don't loving the enemy doesn't mean that we're going to become a doormat to this the powers of Antichrist and those who wish to destroy the church. So interestingly, as we said, the Soviets turned on the renovationists fairly quickly, and already in June and August, when Patriarch uh, Tikhon is released, uh, we see that the the renovationists immediately start to fall apart. Uh, they show disunity. Of course, they had disunity from the beginning. Uh, there was not much unity among them. Uh, there was intrigues to get rid of Antonin, Antonin uh, who was forcefully retired in the, on the 25th of June in 1923. And he was replaced by Abdokim, the one we've been talking about, who was ethically compromised. And seeing this array in the schism after the patriarch's release, its desertion by thousands of the clergy and its empty churches... Instead of repenting, the poor man, he doubles down in collusion with the, with the Secret Service. He decides to regain some respectability for the renovationists by bringing their organization more in line with the traditional Orthodox Church. Now that they've, they've, they've showed their hand, they've showed that they're innovationists, that they're of the world, that they're working with the Bolsheviks, it is the height of na- naivete on the part of this man to think that, that by by dialing a few things back, he's going to now save the boat that's sinking. It's rather uh, tragic. A hurriedly assembled conference in August of 1923 annulled most of the radical uh, decisions of the recent sober. It also renamed itself the Russian Orthodox Church, returned to the old calendar, and installed a traditional synod at the top. So they understood that these changes had undermined any credibility among the faithful. They, they reclaim the name. They throw off the innovationist names. Uh, the, they they re- reclaim the calendar, which the, the faithful did not want to be see changed. And they set up a traditional sin at the top and, of course, uh, the bishops. So the, the uh, renovationists like uh, Videnski, who wanted to see uh, essentially the lower clergy run the church are now put in uh, in their place and this bishop uh, innovator that he was and compromised that he was he, ret- he, re- he returns the church to some or to the, the renovations to some semblance of an orthodox church as one of its last attempts to re- regain popular support the renovationist leadership appealed to the patriarch of Constantinople very interesting this is a very interesting part pay attention misinforming him of the real Russian church situation. They're lying. They're lying to Constantinople. because That's that's, that's important to remember. However, contrary to Orthodox canons, forbidding interference of one ruling bishop in the internal affairs of another, they appealed to Tikhon. They respond to the, the innovationists. They believe what they're saying. I mean, this is years now. At least one or two years, they've, they've, they should have learned by now who these renovations were. Uh, and they appealed to Tikhon for the sake of the schismatics, supposedly for the peace of the church, uh, that he retire and he recognize, and they recognize the renovations as the Orthodox Church of Russia. Right? So this is absolute betrayal of the Orthodox Church on the part of Constantinople. They were lied to. So that is some 
degree of uh, extenuating circumstances, let's say, for Constantinople, but even so, unbelievable. But this did not weaken Tikhon's prestige and popularity in Russia, of course. Uh, the number of, a number of participants in the Conference of Clergy of the Moscow Renovations Diocese in June 1903 now see the writing on the wall. And they force the renovations leaders to begin reconciliation talks with a very patriarch whom they had defrocked. And thus, their act of defrocking has reduced them to a comedy. And they do. They, 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 they're forced probably by the GPU, the Secret Service, but also by people in their own ranks to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to saw, save the boat from sinking. So let's go back to Patriarch Tikhon, who's now been released. and Everybody's running to him. And let's see if we can say, save our skin as well. And yet it just shows how they have no authority because their own defrocking is, 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 is ignored by themselves. They, they themselves have ignored their, their own the defrocking of the patriarch. So now we're moving to 1924-25. And the Soviet power, strangely, and on the face of it, it is bizarre, uh, is now going and pushing the two groups to unification talks. So only one year later, one and a half, two years earlier, you had, in 22, them fomenting a, a split in the church. And now the church, two years later, is supposedly going to be reunified and the, the, the Secret Service wants to see unity. Uh, the answer lies in the dismal failure of the subservient renovationists to attract and keep the masses of Orthodox believers in their fold. All right, so the Secret Service says, look, the renovations aren't going anywhere. They're not going to be what we need. They're going to fold. So what are we going to do? Well, let's unify them. Let's get them in to the patriarchal church. We'll see why in a second. At the end of 22, the Soviet government handed over to renovationists all of all kinds, nearly two-thirds of all functioning churches in, the, in Russia at the time and, and Central Asia. Uh, not counting Ukraine and Belarusia, close to 20,000 churches. All right, so 20, in 22, 20,000 churches are forcibly converted to renovationist churches. Uh, by the end of 26 now, four years later, total figure for all 84 dioceses of the renovationist church, including the Ukraine and some 30 renovationist parishes in North America. Interesting, man. They went over to the renovations in North America as well, some of them was only 6,000. So they started with 20,000, didn't have Ukraine and Belarusia. When they had Ukraine and Belarusia and the 30 in America and Canada, they still only had 6,000. So they lost 15,000 or more. In a few years, they lost all those parishes. So obviously, the writing's on the wall. Um, this may be compared, the, the, this is... Uh, uh, this is from the book by, yeah, Postrelovsky. I can't say his name. And this is compared to the 30,000 or so parishes across the whole Soviet Union in the Patriarchal Church as late as 1930, when enforced mass closure of churches had been occurring already for two years. All right, so even then, after two years of forced closing, they still had 30,000, whereas the Renovations had six. So that gives you a sense of what happened in that time period and how it, 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 it blew up and then it deflated and it, it was uh, already imploding uh, very quickly. 
It was this failure of the renovations that forced the Soviet government to modify their early policy of divide and conquer, which is, of course, demonic, right? Divide and conquer, that's how the devil works. That's why the big problem with the enemy is not what he's saying, not what heresy. He's got a variety of heresies. He's got all kinds of delusions that he introduces throughout church history. That doesn't matter to him. What lie that you believe, right? As long as you believe it and you follow him. It's the division that he wants, right? So eh, this is why some people fall into thinking that ecumenism is a good idea because they know that the enemy wants division. They think unity is of God. But what kind of unity, right? We'll get into that another time. But what kind of unity? Unity in Christ, unity in the truth. So, so false unity is division from God. So it's still the enemy working uh, in most of the ecumenical movement today, it's still the enemy because truth has been sacrificed for the sake of external uh, unity in many places, in many ways, and, and you know, trampling on the canons and on the church teaching and all the rest. But the enemy who is divide and conquer is his MO. Now he changes and he's insisting on unification in order to achieve full control over the patriarchal church by infiltrating her administration with the GPU agents from the renovationist church, such as Krasnitsky or Evdokim. All right, so they're saying, look, let's get them together and then let's put our guys in there and let's have our moles and our, our secret agents and our tools who are beholden to us because they're, they're, they're ethically uh, compromised or we know we can buy them out. Let's get him back into that church now that we can't conquer it by the way of uh, a schism. Uh, let's let's take it over that way. And so that's that's why they changed their tune. Again, it's it's all about divide and conquer. It's still the same MO, right? They still want to divide and conquer. The failure of this plan annoyed Tukov, who may have been implicated in Tikhon's unexpected death. Now, this is very interesting. According to the late Father Alexander Tolsky, a former doctor of the Botkin Hospital where Tikhon had died, confessed to him that the patriarch had been poisoned by GPU agents, by Secret Service agents. Levitin, Levitin cites the renovationist metropolitan of Leningrad, Platonov, among such agents and informants. So we actually have several people who are saying, yeah, th- he didn't, he's a martyr. He's not just a confessor. He was killed by the Secret Service, by the Secret uh, Police, rather, uh, because you know what? They got sick. They got sick of having to deal with somebody who had all the people behind them. They had to get rid of Tikhon, Saint Tikhon, in order to find some someone who will do their bidding at the head of the Orthodox Church in Russia. And unfortunately, they did find somebody eventually um, who went along with their uh, their ideas. So Metropolitan Peter. And here's where we're going to more or less come to an end here. A few more slides, uh, but we're going to pick up where we leave off here in two lessons. Uh, Metropolitan Peter, who replaced the deceased patriarch as his locum tenens, had applied considerable pressure on Patriarch Tikhon to induce him to follow a policy of maximum reconciliation and accommodation within the limits, of course, with the Soviet government. The latter as well as the renovationists, apparently mistook this stance of Metropolitan Peter as a sign that once in power, he will be more pliable and willing to come to a reconciliation with the renovationists and the state as well. 
And this was a mis miscalculation because St. Peter, the higher martyr, proved even more uncompromising on the issue of the renovations than the late patriarch. In fact, he considered them a greater threat to the church than the Soviet government's physical persecutions. He hoped that by proving the complete civic loyalty of his church to the Soviet government, he would win the necessary freedom to deal with the renovation. So he said, look, we've got two enemies. One kills the body, the other one kills the soul. Let's deal with the body, let's do whatever we have to do without compromising our soul to get them, put them at bay, if that's possible. To get rid of the, the one that's killing the soul, the renovationists who are the heresy. Heresy is far worse than persecution. And, you know, just like death is not the worst thing, right? Death is not, people think death is the worst. They fear death. No, death is not the worst. Hell is much worse than death. And hell comes about when you don't love the truth. So heresy is a path to hell. During 1925, the renovationists were preparing for their second sober, to which they hoped to bring Metropolitan Peter and delegates from his diocese. They aimed at achieving some form of reunification, or at least to show a unity which would win them some respect, <laughs> a little respect among the laity and the continuation of state support. Their sober did not convince the Soviets of the renovationists' internal use, international usefulness to them as it failed to induce important foreign churches to send their delegates. So finally, no one among the ancient patriarchates, not even Constantinople, who was playing politics and with the life of St. Tikhon, they, uh, they didn't send delegates either, apparently, to this particular council in 25. I think they had been attending, uh, at least some, one representative had attended earlier councils. So the failure of the sober to, to, of the council of the renovations to induce Peter, Metropolitan St. Peter, to attend any of the sessions may have caused the, the secret police to begin a slander campaign against Metropolitan Peter. And eventually they're going to send him, we're going to get to this in two weeks, they're going to send him into exile and uh, Metropolitan Sergius is going to come and be the, uh, the deputy local tenants. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. So what, let's just finish this up and talk about the decline or maybe the mutation, that's what we'll discuss in two weeks, of the renovationists. Now the, 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 let's say, accepted popular version is that there was a decline and a, an end to the renovations. And to a certain degree, that's true. The renovations, if we're talking about renovations, we mean the particular leaders of the renovations movement and not generally the, the, the phenomenon of renovationism. It did come to an end, came to an end, as we're going to see, in 1940s. Uh, it lost support through the 20s, as we said, despite reorganization and an attempt to reunite disparate elements by calling a second renovation national council. We just saw that in October 25. As we said, true Orthodox believers saw everyone in the living church movement as traitors who had sold out to the communists. It's very important. We need clarity in these things. This is not, this is not a, oh, maybe a little bit. No, these are traitors to the church, period. The movement declined dramatically throughout the 1930s, as did the Orthodox Church in general. In other words, they were persecuted severely by the Orthodox Church, by the uh, Soviet Bolsheviks. The Living Church movement experienced a short-lived revival during the first years of World War II, when Soviet persecution of religion eased and Videnski became leader of the movement. In 1943, Stalin permitted senior Moscow Patriarchate bishops we're talking about a handful, just a few, uh, to reinstate a national church administration. 
A month later, he approved a plan to merge renovationist parishes with the Moscow Patriarchate. And Vedensky opposed this decision, but his death in July of 46 officially ended the Living Church movement. He actually wanted to reconcile with the Moscow Patriarchate, but he wanted to be received either, I think, as a bishop or a priest, and that was refused to him. And so he stayed in his own and he died uh, as, you know, a living church bishop. Uh, for decades afterwards, however, bishop or Orthodox believers used living church and renovationists as synonyms for religious traitors. All right, so renovationist e equals a religious traitor, a tra traitor to the church in uh, Orthodoxy. Now, a final quote from this, uh, this uh, dissident, Soviet dissident historian of renovationism, Himself was for a time in the renovations, actually made a deacon by this uh, Videnski, uh, left and went to the Moscow Patriarchate. But he's probably the most knowledgeable and the most accessible in terms of our knowledge of the renovationists and their mentality. And he says the following, renovationism turned out to be a hoax. Instead of true renewal of the church, it was servility to the NKVD and careerism. And this is somebody who was, as again, a time in the renovation. So that that I think that's how I want to end the renovations. That's what they were all about. They were about the spirit of the world. And but that's the kind of antichrist pseudo church that will exist at the end times. Will bow down to the antichrist. They will have the exterior appearance of the Church of Christ, the Orthodox Church. And yet they will be totally corrupt within. And this is a type of the end times. This is an image of what we will see in the end times. When the same Antichrist spirit that took over Russia and the Bolsheviks and infiltrated the church and took people out of the church into renovations, that same Antichrist spirit will return. And we even more cunning, I think, in the end day, in the end times. All right, let's end this with the Solovki Memorandum in 1927, and it does it 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 might seem a little bit outside the purview of this uh, lecture, but it, it isn't. And I want to end this because I want total clarity about the Orthodox Church position on the Soviets and what is possible in terms of. Uh, our, our stance with Antichrist uh, powers in this world. In May 1927, a memorandum was issued, presumably smuggled out by a group of bishops imprisoned in what had been the Solovki or Solovets monastery near the border with Finland, famous ancient monastery going back a thousand years. I'm not sure actually when it was founded, but many, many hundreds of years. And so uh, this is the beginning of the gulag, according to Solzhenitsyn, this is where it started. This was the, the major, the first major uh, stop in the creating of the network of labor camps. Most of the bishops and clerics in prison, <clears throat> the memorandum claimed, were there because of their refusal to recognize the renovationists. So, that's very interesting. Now, they were also there after a few months, because this was before the declaration by Patriarch Surges. So everyone there at that point uh, were there, as it says here, by the renovations. Quickly, Solovki, in the next two to three years, will fill up with those who refuse to sign 
and accept the declaration of, of metropolitan surges. But at this point, they're there because of the renovationists. So the renovationists were a tool for the Soviets, the, the Bolsheviks, to figure out who's faithful and who will not bow their knee to Baal and to exile them to Solovki. It argued that the church could coexist with the Soviet state on the basis of a strict separation of powers under which, quoting the summary now from this book of Poskielowski, I'm probably butchering that, the church will not interfere in the social economic activities and reform of the state and in the fulfillment by citizens of their civic duties. All right, so let's, let's understand what this is saying here. It's not saying what Sergius will say, obviously, in two years. Uh, while the state will cease to interfere in the spiritual activities of the church and to hinder the spiritual life of its citizens. St. Tikhon had declared the obligation of civil, civic loyalty in 1923. And according to this author, not a single cleric had been sentenced for anti-Soviet activities by a Soviet court. All had been sent there by administrative action. So at least on for the sake of the appearance, the Soviets were not sending people after, after uh, going to court uh, on some basis of some kind of law, uh, but they were, they were sent there by administration. It was just a way, another way of getting around it and sending the Orthodox to, to exile. But that's not the important part of this memorandum. This is what we need to focus on. The memorandum nonetheless laid out the utter incompatibility of the church's teaching with what it calls communism as expressed in the philosophy of the atheist state. The church recognizes the spiritual principles of existence. Communism rejects them. The church believes in the living God, the creator of the world, the leader of its life and destinies. Communism denies his existence, believes in the spontaneity of the world's existence, and in the absence of rational, ultimate causes of its history. <clears throat> the church assumes that the purpose of human life is the heavenly fatherland, even if she lives in conditions of the highest development of material culture and general well-being. Communism refuses to recognize any other purpose of mankind's existence but material welfare. The ideological differences between the church and the state descend from the apex of philosophical observations to the practical sphere of ethics, justice, and law. Communism considers them to be a conditional result of class struggle and assesses the phenomena of the moral sphere exclusively in terms of utility. Some of these things exactly apply today to some of the movements, the ideological movements and neo-Marxism uh, that we're seeing in the West. The church preaches love and mercy, com communism, camaraderia, I don't know how you say that, and merciless struggle the church instills in believers humility which elevates the person communism debases man by pride the church preserves chastity of the body and sacredness of reproduction communism sees nothing else in marital relations but satisfaction of the instinct instincts the church sees in religion a life-bearing force which serves as the source of all greatness in man's creativity, as the basis for man's earthly happiness, sanity, and welfare. 
Communism sees religion as opium, drugging the people and relaxing their energies as the source of their suffering and poverty. The church wants to see religion flourish. Communism wants its death. Such a deep contradiction is in the very basis of their Weltanschungen precludes any intrinsic approximation between the church and state, as there cannot be any between affirmation and negation. All right, I want to repeat that. Precludes any intrinsic approximation between the church and the state, as there cannot be any between affirmation and negation. Because the very soul of the church, the condition of her existence and the sense of her well-being is that which is categorically denied by communism. Categorically denied by communism. All right? So this is the witness of the saints, the confessors, the picture of the clergy in the Solovki camp. I'm not sure what this date's from. And I'm not sure if I, uh, I'm sure if somebody who is well, is well acquainted with all these faces can point out some of these saints uh, that we have glorified. But these are the voice of the martyrs in the church. And that is the end of lesson four. I hope that this has been profitable for you. You've gotten a good sense of the spiritual dynamic behind uh, the demonic, rather dynamic behind the Bolsheviks and the renovationists and the Orthodox response, which is uncompromising and uh, is not, uh, cannot be reconciled with the Bolsheviks and their plans of every age.